1: Welcome to a really special end-of-the-year episode here at Burned by Books. I'm lucky to be joined today by representatives of three of the most dynamic and influential independent bookstores in the country, Buffalo Street Books in Ithaca, New York, Changing Hands Bookstore in Tempe and Phoenix, Arizona, and the Seminary Co-op Bookstores in Chicago, Illinois. Along with my co-host for this episode, Kasha Bartoszinska, we discuss the wonderful variety of best-ofs that these booksellers bring with them to the show. While I hope this will be a buying guide of sorts for the holidays and the weeks afterwards when indie bookstores need you most, I think you'll love the conversation we had about the importance of the deliberate curating of a bookstore's offerings and how the book that we don't know we want might be the one that changes our lives. One of the lessons of the pandemic is that bookstores are so much more than mere retail spaces. Now more than ever, the choice to buy our books, all of them, from our favorite local store is an endorsement of community and of the riches of being together in a moment that can feel like profound detachment. Our three guests today make reading and book buying feel like a miraculous civic duty. I can't wait for you to hear more from them. Let's start the show. Welcome back to Burned by Books. First, I want to introduce my first ever guest host for today's special Best of Booksellers edition. She is my brilliant colleague, Kasia Bartoszynska. Kasha is assistant professor of English and women's and gender studies at Ithaca College. She is the author of Estranging the Novel Poland, Ireland, and Theories of World Literature, which came out this year with Johns Hopkins University Press. However, my main reason for wanting Kasha on the show is that she is one of the most voracious and eclectic readers that I know, and I know a lot of readers. She is she was also, uh, as it happens, an employee of the Seminary Co op bookstores in Chicago, which is one of our featured stores today. Welcome, Kasha.
2: Hi, thank you.
1: It's so great to have you here. Um, Next, I want to introduce you to our amazing booksellers and book buyers that we're lucky to have here today. We have representatives from three of the most interesting, vibrant, and community-oriented independent booksellers in the country. First up is Elena Jones, who is Director of Buying and Content at the Seminary Co-op Bookstores. In 2019, The Stores, The Co-op, an exemplary academic bookstore for scholars and laypeople alike, and 57th Street, a robustly stocked general interest bookstore with a world-class children's section, became the country's first not-for-profit bookstores whose mission is bookselling. Welcome, Elena.
0: Thank you. It's good to be here, Chris. Thanks for having me.
1: Next up is Lisa Swayze who is the buyer and general manager at Buffalo Street Books in Ithaca, New York, my beloved local store. (laughs) Buffalo Street Books has been cooperatively owned since 2011, and they take seriously the mission to ensure that everyone in their community can find themselves in their books and find comfort and safety in their space. Hi, Lisa.
3: Hi. Haven't seen you in a few days now.
1: I know, it's been too long. (laughs) And last but not least, Michelle Malonzo is a buyer at Changing Hands Bookstore, which has two locations in Arizona. Changing Hands Bookstore believes in being community-driven and socially responsible bookstore and gathering space. Michelle is on the board of directors of the American Booksellers Association, the ABA, as well as a member of the ABA Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee. Previously, she worked in publishing for nearly 10 years. She is also a dear friend of mine from graduate school. (laughs) Hi, Michelle.
4: Hello, Chris. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Oh, I'm so pleased to have you all here. And I want to start with uh, a big picture question. And that is, what are each of your senses of what this year was like for books? Um, was it a year to remember? And how did indie bookstores fare this year, the second year of, of COVID?
3: Um, this is Lisa. I can I want to pipe in with one important realization. It's more to the second question, which is that one of the things that we've realized at Buffalo Street Books is that... Weirdly, our economic situation is somewhat improved over the last almost two years because Mm. we've gotten extra government and local support, which is kind of what indie bookstores need. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we act as these uh cultural centers for our communities and we're not usually nonprofits. and even seminary i know does not ask for donations um and we're the environment we're working in makes it really difficult to turn a profit so strangely one of the things we've learned is sort of about how much actual extra support we kind of need so i think that's interesting
0: yeah i this is elena i agree with that um and just slight, slight correction we do, we absolutely accept financial gifts from, from anyone who's looking uh, to give a gift to a cultural institution like the co-op. But um, so
1: I, take note, the listeners.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh semcoop.com slash give. Uh, the um, Lisa says something so important, which is that we need other sources of funding bookstores as a retail venture just don't make sense. We mm-hmm. don't stock our stores in the way that you stock a grocery store or a clothing mm-hmm. store. So the payment structure that those are set up on just doesn't make any sense for a bookstore because we want um, to have a really diverse and deep inventory of books and we want those books to sit around until they find the perfect reader. If we are going to stock a really interesting collection of books, it means that they're not things that are flying off the shelves to everyone, which means of course, that it just takes a lot longer to pay, to sell and pay for those books. And so the idea of looking for other places of support from governments, from municipalities, from uh, private sources of funding, it's absolutely necessary right now.
4: So this is Michelle, you know, changing hands is more of a very standard bricks and mortar retail space. And we are very lucky in that our customers choose us every day. And they came out in droves in 2020, and they have stood by us. and. There's also just been a change in spending habits. I think as people are becoming more aware of how important it is to invest in your community businesses, uh, and that has always been the the model and what the founder and the owners are constantly educating the customers and local municipalities about. And they listen. Mm-hmm. Our customers have listened, um, and it's been. Very surprising, and and grateful how they have invested in us. I'm I'm overwhelmed by the outpouring. Um, and while our sales have been up this year, uh, I wouldn't say that it was an easy year. I think 2020 was a very traumatic year, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that we are all going to be dealing with the aftershocks of what exactly that means and how that has affected us on many ways and in many levels. Um, As a a Mexican and Asian bookseller, uh, there are definitely ways in which 2020 and this year have marked me that is very different from some of my white industry colleagues. And I I point that out because I think it is important to remember those differences uh, the way I'm sure the year has marked many queer and other marginalized booksellers. The outpouring of uh, community support for us uh, as a store and just the support I have felt from colleagues at the store and industry-wide is, I mean, it's overwhelming.
1: That's amazing because I I feel like in the in the age of Amazon, the story of having a community like actually do the needed thing and put their dollars um, towards the stories is is a minority story um, from what I hear. But but maybe that's not the case. Um, Lisa and and Elena, are you finding that people are finally listening to that to that anti Amazon pro indie story?
3: It's Lisa. I would say that in our community, Chris, as you know, um, I think there's certainly a steadfast um, group of people who are truly invested they are owners of this store and they and that's what helps us be connected to the community and i do think that maybe we're seeing even more um i feel like we're articulating the message better um, in much the same ways that michelle was saying that about our value to the community the role we play in the community and how important the their support for us is and i think that that's that's how we've lasted as long as we have in these, you know, in a difficult environment.
0: Yeah. And I'll say that this, this year has given, this is Elena. um, uh, The year has given us a chance to put our philosophy and our mission in front of, if not a new set of people, then people who are listening in a different way and questioning things in new ways that they maybe took for granted in 2019 uh, or earlier. And so it really, we have a chance to step up and, and show what our value is mm-hmm. that it's we're not just a place that puts a bunch of objects on on shelves mm-hmm. um but we're we're offering something different and so we've certainly had just outpourings of support from uh browsers from you know around the world who are saying we we value you we want you around uh but i will say again that at a store like the co-op it doesn't matter how like we could have tenfold the sales and the retail model still fails mm-hmm. bookstores mm-hmm. so it is about expanding support and um and browsership but it um it's not enough uh we need the um a different model a, dis- a different business model if bookstores are really going to thrive by stocking and selling um a di- diverse and robust backlist mm-hmm. 100% agree And
4: this is Michelle. And I agree 100% with that. Uh, I am not an owner, but uh, it is very clear that the industry model is not sustainable Mm -hmm. on many levels for bookstores, uh, for publishers, Mm -hmm. for small presses, for authors.
2: uh, So we really need to reimagine that. This is Kasha. Um, I have. I there was a question that I had been thinking about asking you towards the end, but I guess it makes maybe more sense to ask it earlier. Which is that um, I had wanted to ask you all um, how you're thinking about the role of bookstores and what they're for has changed over the last few years, um, and I think that. Especially, you know, we had kind of moved from um, an understanding that a bookstore is not just a place to buy books, like the function of a store is not just as Elena put it to have a bunch of books on a shelf. Um, and then for a long time, there was this idea, I think that bookstores were like a community gathering space and a place where there were readings and a place where there were events. And then of course, during COVID, that couldn't happen. Right. Um, so I started. Asking myself, and I wonder if you all have been having these reflections too, of like, what, what are some of the other things that bookstores do? Um, Because I think that one big thing that they do that is less appreciated is kind of curate, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they're Thousands upon thousands of books sold, or, you know, published every year, and a bookstore doesn't stock all of them. So, which ones you actually see, like the fact that somebody is making those choices, is is actually really valuable. Um, and and I think that maybe doesn't get enough attention. But I wonder if there are other things um, that you all have thought about. Uh, this is Michelle. I- I'm really
4: glad you brought that up. I think that sometimes people forget, even in the industry even amongst um, booksellers that we are places of curation and we do not have to be everything to everyone. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think bookstores are important precisely because we are curating and we are having conversations with customers, both literally and figuratively by what we stock on our shelves of here are the stories that matter. And the questions we need to be asking ourselves are are these stories upholding the status quo or are they subverting it? What are the stories that matter? And the thing is, is every industry is built upon white supremacy and we have to counterbalance that. Mm
3: -hmm.
4: It's ingrained in us. It's ingrained in everything that we do. Mm -hmm. And stories have the power to resist that. So what we choose to stock is really important. And not every store wants to have that mission and that's their decision. Um, But I think it is important for us to recognize a story is not just a story. It is a tool for how we create a narrative on humanity of others.
3: Yeah, this is Lisa. And I I would say that Obviously, one hundred percent agree with everything you just said, Michelle. I um I know that it is very deliberate and very conscious on on my part and on the part of the store to to take that role seriously, um, to see ourselves as uh, role models on some level, I suppose, um, not exactly, but more, you know, set an example and live by the values that we're um, saying we're going to live by. And the flip side and the other side of that is that you're also, in doing so, doing a better job of representing your community. So not only are you, um, are we trying to Curate the books that we think are important for the conversations and the stories that they are bringing up um, and the revelations that we're going to learn from those things. But it's also on the other side of it, it, in searching out all the stories and incorporating far greater diversity of stories than might have been the standard in the past, we're also reflecting far more people in our community who can find themselves on our shelves.
0: This is Elena. I think that another thing that a bookstore does in the in the process of curation is simply giving giving a browser permission to ask questions, uh, and by providing a wealth of material and a wealth of perspectives in many different fields from across you know decades and centuries and millennia, uh, by simply putting that in front of someone, we allow them to kind of forge their own path through those books, uh, pick up things that have never come across before, make connections merely by like what books are sitting next to each other on the shelves. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that that process of exploration and the nurturing of curiosity is something essential that a bookstore can do by bringing all of these things together and allowing someone just kind of like free you know setting someone loose in a bookstore and one of the things that we lost this year the past two years without having people in the stores and it was incredibly sad i'm sure i'm sure everyone else here can feel that that going through the stacks was just incredibly sad our inventory was being depleted there was no one there kind of like browsing around looking for some some new discovery it really felt like um the shelves lost like an essential life force. And then when we opened the stores again, having people, you know, uh, <laughs> putting things back in the wrong order and asking questions and mm-hmm. looking for certain titles, it was really like a, this revivifying force uh, to have people back in the stores uh, looking at just this huge collection of books, slightly smaller collection of books. The inventory really was depleted.
1: <laughs> Speaking of curation, um... You each have curated beautiful lists of your favorite books of the year, and I wonder if I could get each of you to talk about two books from those lists that you think will last for you as in some way important or consuming or especially beautiful. Um, you decide how you want to categorize them, but um, Elena, we, would you start us off?
0: Oh, I sure could. Thanks for starting <laughs> with me, Chris. All right. Two, but I listed so many.
1: Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You could talk about more. It's okay. No,
0: no, no, no. Two is just fine. Uh, The first one I'll call out is The Breaks by Julieta Singh. This um, was just absolutely a bookseller favorite um, among staff, and we're seeing it sell well through the holidays. But it is, I think, one of the really interesting, important things that this book does is put forth a different way of conceiving of family and kinship uh, somewhat in the tradition of Donna Haraway, but uh, bringing in many, many other influences as well. And it, uh, she's looking at how to, how to love those around you, how to care for those around you, what makes a family who, what constitutes love, whether you can feel love for an animal, whether you can feel love for Mm. a child who's not your own, uh, in the same way that you can love your own child um, that's in your own family. And I think that these meditations on love and connection um, are something that people are absolutely looking for this year. And that yeah, I've seen it already in the obituaries for, for Bell Hooks talking about how how bell hooks taught them about love and caring and as we get through this kind of trauma of the get through as we uh continue to be in the trauma of the pandemic people are asking those questions so this book the breaks i think will absolutely stick around as a as a resource and a challenge and just a a comfort for a lot of
1: people yeah it seems like a, a book i need immediately
0: yes yeah it's it's absolutely fantastic highly recommended um <laughs> And a second book I'll call out is um, the book, Halfway Home, Race, uh, Race Punishment, and the Afterlife of Mass Incarceration by Ruben Jonathan Miller. Uh, Dr. Miller is a professor at the University of Chicago whose um, brother uh, was incarcerated and he's looking to kind of using this personal history as, and quite a bit of sociological research as a jumping off point, looking at, how life after incarceration is a different type of prison, like the ways in which mm-hmm. uh, even a small arrest will follow someone around and limit, truly constrict their their potential and their possibilities throughout the rest of their lives. Uh, and it's already, I mean, it's been widely talked about in, in the growing field of incarceration studies. Uh, and he's, he's just a phenomenal teacher and writer and speaker. So I think it's going to come up uh, as people continue to to research and challenge uh the incarceration system
1: yeah that uh, the the canonization of key books in that in that new but absolutely essential genre is mm-hmm. i'm so pleased that I, there's another one to think of in that group because we we need more and more as we understand how much it is a continuation of jim crow in by mm-hmm. another name Absolutely, Lisa. Do you want to um, talk about two on your list?
3: Sure. It's it is very hard, but um, I think for my fiction pick, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about the, um, the book that just surprised me the most, and that I continue to pe- be pushing on other people. And it also makes me happy because it's a debut author from a small press, and that's "I Will Die in a Foreign Land" by Kalani Pickert. Um, and I did not know about this book ahead of time. It was one of those moments where I picked up the arc that I had been sent and just started reading it and I couldn't stop. Um, it is about the, um, protests in Ukraine. Um, it is about three main characters from very diverse backgrounds and the ways that they come together and pull apart, um, in that time period, I learned a lot about that situation from it. And I also just, um, I think it's a very tender book. I think it's very gentle with its characters and it, and it gives each of them uh, a lot of room to be whole and broken, (laughs) Mm. all of those things. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I, I'm really excited about that book and happy to be, recommending it a lot.
1: It's, um, it's funny. That's one of those examples of when a fantastic, uh, bookseller and, uh, and, and GM can, can turn you onto something you had no idea about. You were the first person to say, this is a really special book. Um, I read it, um, and it is indeed very special. And uh, I, I then kind of reached out to Kalani, and and she's actually the next interview. Oh,
2: I'm so um, excited.
1: Um, but I think it's yeah, it's it's really a remarkable book. I'm glad yeah. you flagged it.
3: Yeah, that's great. Um, and and I. It's really hard. I mean, usually it's harder for me to highlight one fiction because that's my real wheelhouse. But in the nonfiction category this year, we had so many important books like How the Word is Passed by Clint Smith, which every other page was a revelation and 1619 Project, of course, and Empire of Pain. But I am going to go for the local pride and talk about the book that is, um, very near and dear to me, which is everything I have is yours, a memoir by -hmm. our friend, Eleanor Henderson. It is a very painful, difficult memoir about a marriage, um, about a part living with and figuring out how to navigate living with a partner with both mental and physical illnesses. Um, it's very real. It's very raw. And of course it's beautifully written because Eleanor Henderson knows what she's doing. She is a colleague of Kasha and Chris's in the writing department at Ithaca college. And her, um, first book, 10,000 saints, uh, was a miracle. And the, uh, and then she also wrote 12 miles straight a few years ago. So this is her first nonfiction and also our number one selling book of the year. Thanks to, um, a very special event we did with her. I I just want more people to read this book because I think
1: it's very powerful. Yeah, me too. Thanks, (laughs) Lisa. Michelle.
4: Well, first I just want to say, I am so happy that you chose, um, I will die in a foreign land because (laughs) she is a local author for us. So, (laughs) (laughs) um, it was really hard, uh, to narrow down to two, but I think for, uh, The two I've chosen are very personal and special for me. Um, For nonfiction, the first will be Taste Like War Mm -hmm. by Grace M. Choi, which was actually a a National Book Award Mm -hmm. finalist for nonfiction. It is, I love books that defy genre. Mm
0: -hmm.
4: And it is part food memoir heart history, what it means to be a woman of color, to experience trauma, and how we diagnose mental health. It is some of the most exquisite writing I've read about those issues. Um, So she talks about how she discovered her mother had schizophrenia, the diagnosis, the sort of unraveling of her mother's mind, and does so through food and through history and sociological research because she's a sociologist. And in it, you learn, I learned so much about the Korean War and comfort women that I had never read or heard before that left me um, appalled and also really grateful to the author for writing about it. And as someone who has a family that has dealt with a lot of cultural uh, and psychological trauma, you know, it's only now that people are actually talking about how that affects your mental health.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: I think this is a beautiful dedication to her mother. There is a lot of love on these pages
3: mm-hmm.
4: that is both trying, both coming to terms with how her mother's decline what she survived because she survived the Korean war and the sacrifices that she made to be a mother and to try to be the best that she could for her and her brother. Uh, I I can't recommend this book enough. I think um, as much as it is a novel, not a novel, but a memoir of, of war and food and mental health, it's also a Memoir of, of Love.
1: It sounds incredible.
4: Um, I'm, I'm obsessed with this book. Um, and then the next one, which brings me infinite joy and happiness, <laughs> is um, Dreaming of You by Melissa Lozado Oliva, which is a novel in verse about the poet Melissa, who brings back Selena from the dead. (laughs) It is so mind blowing because you hear that and you think, well, this is funny. But what she does is she dissects celebrity culture, fandom, and the way we put all of our hopes and dreams onto these singular figures, while also really dissecting the way Yolanda who murdered Selena, was represented, who I did not know, she is a lesbian, Mm -hmm. and really goes into what happens when you are a queer woman of color and you do not see yourself. Mm -hmm. And for so many of us who are Latinx, we did not have anyone of my generation but Selena. I'm gonna be 40 next year. She was it we did put all of our dreams on her. We relied on her for our representation to speak for us, to bring our culture out there so that it could be respected and understood. And then she was murdered. And I think the way she really delves into what did that do to Selena how does that reflect on the family, but also to create empathy for Yolanda, which I mean, when you're Latinx, you hear Yolanda. That's like, you know, the name that you do not say, Hmm. I think is just so uh, brilliant. And the way she does it uh, in verse, it's, you know, you can read it like a novel or you can read it just as poetry with a theme. Uh, I love, I'm, it brings me so much happiness. I love it. I love it.
1: (laughs) What an extraordinary conceit. I can't wait to check it out. Um, I wanted to just jump in and ask a question about the kind of surprise bestsellers that you saw in your own stores—things that just jumped off the shelf that you sort of kind of tilted your head and and thought, "Oh, that's that, that's cool that that has a a big readership and and maybe wasn't something that was showing up on on people's best ofs, but definitely for your store was a thing that people were excited about."
4: Uh, this is Michelle. Um, I think for us it would be, and it brings me, I, I'm so happy about it, Dead, Dead Girls, uh, which is a cozy mystery, mm-hmm. which I love. It's, so it's a cozy mystery, but it is... What's
1: a cozy lo- mystery, Michelle?
4: <laughs> oh my goodness. I'm
1: sorry, I'm it, showing my ignorance.
4: <laughs> no, it. it it is basically, because I connect things to pop culture, it would be like a murder she wrote or diagnosis murder. Okay. You know, everything gets tied up in a bow, mm-hmm. but also what they don't have, there is like a cutesy element to it. So like so many cozy mysteries feature either like a sleuthing cat or dog,
1: <laughs>
4: which obviously it's why I love them. <laughs> um <laughs> And so this is one that is, so again, with all things publishing, Cozy Mysteries, predominantly white,
2: mm-hmm.
4: um, and Dead, Dead Girls is a black and queer cozy mystery. Most cozies are not only white, but also straight. Mm-hmm. And we did, uh, we do our book preview events with some sales reps a couple times a year, and we talk about titles that we're excited about. And one of them was, was dead, dead girls to give it sort of a boost. And I did my spiel about why I love cozy mysteries. And that is because I don't like to be scared. Mm -hmm. I need to feel some joy. And I also like a good mystery, but I don't need there to be excessive amounts of blood (laughs) or killing or anything. And that is what a cozy gives you. Everything wraps up you know, it's not too bloody, not too scary. It's perfect for the scaredy cat that is me. <laughs> uh, and that book has been flying off our shelves. And people are already asking. They've come in, they're like, I never really thought of cozies before. I thought they were sort of silly. And I'm like, well, they kind of are <laughs> in a great way. Um, and, uh, They read it and loved it and can't wait for the second book in the series, which is coming out next year. Uh, And it's moving so fast. I'm
3: just shocked, happily shocked.
1: I'm going to become a cozy, a cozy mystery fan. I can tell.
3: Yeah, Chris, (laughs) you know, Katie, Katie knows a little bit about some cozy mysteries,
1: Chris. Oh, she does. Okay. I'll have to talk to her.
3: Uh, And I I have something a little bit similar. We, we, when I first took over at the bookstore, like many indie bookstores, we did not have a romance section at all. And my perception of romance was 100% the Fabio cover and mm-hmm. over the top and all of that. And I have learned so much over the last few years. Um, we did a when we decided to launch our section, we call it the Romanticals section. And when we decided to launch it, we we knew that our way of doing a romance section was going to be different and we were going to be very deliberately diverse and very deliberately diverse on a million fronts. And so we, um, we started with an event with um, Adriana Herrera, who's written a bunch of different things, um, including uh, one mystery that is actually set in Ithaca with a uh, two gay male protagonists. And um, one of them owns a food truck that parks next to the library called American I think that was american dreamer i can't they were all american something uh and we had um someone who's now on my board who is an editor um of romances uh they are uh john jacobson and he, they do a lot of editing of trans and queer uh, romance so they did an event to launch a romanticals and i remember john saying Romance is 100% the most revolutionary genre because no matter who the main characters are, you know they're going to have a happy ending. And that just blew my mind. And it's been so special to find more books like that. And this year we had a couple of romances and, and, and one book that kind of crosses the line between romance and cozy mystery Uh, a little bit cozy is Arsenic and Adobo by Mia Manansala, which is uh, uh, it's, it's a cooking mystery. It's a uh, Filipino family mystery. It's a romance. It's got food. It's, it's really, really, really fun. And it's been fun to recommend that and to see other people reading it all year. Oh my
4: God, Lisa, I love that book. And it also sells for us. I'm so happy you (laughs) talked about it. (laughs)
0: I think a book that um, wasn't necessarily a surprise for us, but it illustrates uh, what happens when a bookseller gets so enthusiastic about a book and is just able to generate enthusiasm from others and speak to customers with a lot of passion and um, figure out who the right audience is for the book. Uh, It was Percival Everett's, The Trees. Mm -hmm. Uh, Of course, Percival Everett has been writing for, decades he's he's got like 14 or 19 novels as uh, prolific he's so talented he's so funny and and mordant and and just brilliant and takes on so many different things in his novels but he hasn't been on a lot of people's radars um and this was a book like I you know I was aware of him but I hadn't read him before a bookseller of ours um the coordinator at the store Megana, um just you know couldn't stop talking about him and was was so excited to introduce him to basically anyone who would listen and we just saw sales of his newest novel the trees spike as well as some of the um novels that come out uh in years before like erasure and telephone and it was it was absolutely amazing to see what happens when just one person gets behind a book uh and yeah i would I highly recommend it it's you know this blend of southern gothic and uh mystery and historical fiction and historical fact uh all done with this um uh, really tight well-defined writing style and um uh, a lot of tongue in cheek uh, it's just it's
1: fantastic so
0: highly recommended
1: I haven't read trees, but, uh, I, I have frequently taught erasure and Mm -hmm. I I just think he's a writer that should be monumentally more popular because he's so funny and, and deals with such interesting issues, but taken from perspectives that are, are, are very original and unexpected. And, uh, you know, I just want him to have a a much bigger audience so i'm so glad that yeah. in our seminar, seminary he does
0: uh yeah the especially with the trees it's you know he's he's wrestling with you know the the lynching of emmett till and then just the uh historical memory of lynching uh and to do so without um being didactic or overly sentimental like what a what a gift to be able, or what a feat rather, to be able to treat um, a subject like, to interrogate and like tear apart a subject like that uh, with humor and care and erudition. It was just um, fantastic.
2: (laughs) This is Kasha jumping in because I was thinking as you were talking about how I think that is is kind of an emerging trend maybe of books that um, take on difficult topics or complex topics, but do so in like funny, you know, kind of compulsively readable ways. Um, one of my favorite books this year was Tori Peters' Detransition Baby, which also is like thinking about sort of gender identity and parenthood and what happens if Three people were to raise a child together, and it's also one of the funniest novels I've read this year. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that this is this is sort of an an exploding category, if you will. Um, but I especially in in following up what you were saying about um, Percival Everett as somebody who's being discovered, I kind of. I think of this year as being one where there are various trends in the book world that I see as being kind of on the up and up and on the verge of really breaking out. Like, it seems like people are paying more attention to small presses um, and indie presses. People are paying more attention to um, the kinds of stories, you know, that, that have been left out of the mainstream. People are paying more attention to literature and translation. Um, So I, I, wanted to ask you all if you have any sort of predictions for, like, what will, what will be the thing that hasn't gotten enough attention that is finally, you know, really starting to kind of be talked about and noticed? It's Lisa, Kasha. you're asking us to predict the
3: future. That's really not nice of you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, it it, it, and I it was can also be say, what I you would wish, say... <laughs> it doesn't have to be what you think will, but what, what do you wish would?
3: Um, yeah, I mean, I think that there have been um, for our store, I think it's definitely that that the whole we created, the we didn't have a literature and translations section until this year. Um, that had all just been shelved in with our regular fiction. And it's enabled us to discover a lot more work. So I think that trend will continue. Um, I would have said romance two years ago. I think that has really hit during the pandemic for all the reasons that Michelle was talking about with Cozy Mysteries in the same way that, that we want you know, a good chunk of the time, at least some of the time to read things that make us feel better, not worse. (laughs) Um, And I might say maybe it'll be middle grade reading because I feel like YA has gotten a lot of attention. Young adults, uh, authors have been praised as justly. Um, There's been just an explosion of amazing work. And I think that it's similarly happening in middle grade, but we haven't been hearing as much about it and maybe more starting to happen. So that might be something. I don't know. It would be nice Lisa,
1: if some of those authors got more attention. Lisa, did you want to shout out uh, Maya and the Robot as yeah. your as your middle <laughs> reader choice?
3: Yeah, I love that book. And of course, any, all the other booksellers will probably recognize it. And you in Chicago will recognize it because it's Eve Ewing. Like, how can you not like a middle grade book written by Eve Ewing, who's also a renowned poet and educator and just all around amazing person. And that book is definitely one that we read and loved and were interested in and pushed and have been seeing sell really well, which is great.
4: Uh, this is Michelle. I think I will just touch on what I hope to see, and I think this piggybacks a little bit on what Lisa was talking about with, with romance, which is romance was was maligned precisely because they didn't, people did not understand the revolutionary power of joy. <laughs> I think few people understand how much joy is resistance, especially if you are marginalized, and how your joy and your existence is a revolutionary act Mm -hmm. and i think publishers like to pigeonhole us in the kinds of stories we're allowed to tell and which are those stories that are going to get the marketing dollars and the push and all the publicity uh and if you are marginalized if you have a marginalized identity then of course the stories that are uh very sad and traumatic are the ones that will get fed all the glory and the money and the ads and the book club picks and whatnot. Uh, and we deserve to see ourselves with joy. Mm-hmm. And that is why, you know, Black romances, Latinx romances, you know, You Had Me at Ola is one of the few mm-hmm. Latinx romances I have ever encountered. Mm-hmm. And that is really powerful. And I don't think that publishers and I don't think that many people in the industry really appreciate that. Why it is important that we see ourselves joyous and why do our stories always have to be in a certain frame of, of trauma and misery? Uh, and those stories are important, but there's definitely, you know, finally people are talking about, yes, but you've now, you, you're going so heavy. That way, that's those are the stories that get the marketing dollars. Those are the stories that get pushed. Those are the ones you're putting, you know, pushing on the Good Morning America, Today Show, Reese Witherspoon, all the A and B, you know, book club picks. Uh, And that's that doesn't have to be the case. Uh, And I think that just goes to expanding how we see ourselves and how we see others. Uh, And I hope that that conversation continues. And I hope that more publishers
3: uh help bring those stories to the forefront it's lisa michelle i loved you had me at a lot too and i've read the second one now too they're both great and i think john <laughs> who i mentioned earlier may have been one of the editors on that.
0: so small world yeah yeah <laughs> uh i'll go in a, this is elena i'll go in a slightly different direction for something that i'd like to see uh, i can't have, believe that you're asking us to predict anything, Kasha, <laughs> after <laughs> after the past two years. But um, something that the seminary has uh, tried to do for years and hopefully does successfully is push people toward um, books that really endure, even if they are not necessarily of the moment, um, but can nonetheless help someone understand their their lives in the present. So, you know, we've seen uh, just a rush of political, I guess we'll always see a pl- rush of political memoirs and campaign memoirs, and this is what happened, you know, this was what was really going on behind closed doors. Uh, and a lot of those books, for many reasons, uh, <laughs> they're they're not informative, I think, in the way that a lot of people are looking for. They don't know, they don't know the what what's missing. It, well, I don't want to sound dismissive, but there's so many ways to look at our present moment without necessarily uh, picking up a book that was written in the last year about the present moment. But instead, looking at the radical tradition, or looking at the conservative tradition, or looking about looking at the entire history of debt, or um, any, pr- or even an incarceration, or hierarchies and power that the answer doesn't need to lie in books that were published this year. Uh, So really trying to push people toward uh, books that are heavily researched, heavily fact-checked from university presses that give really solid groundings to issues that are um, relevant to people's lives today, even if the book itself isn't about, you know, reflecting on our current moment, it nonetheless gives someone an important framework for understanding the world that we all live in. And I would love, the more we can push people towards that type of reading and inquiry, um, I think the more informed citizenry we'll have.
1: That that was beautifully said. Um, I, I think that whenever I talk about university presses and why I wish they had a, a bigger lay readership, it's for precisely that reason um, that you so nicely laid out this idea that ideas don't spring up de novo at at the moment that we're living and that they have a long history and that the more you understand the history of a particular idea, the more you're likely to understand your contemporary moment. But I, you know you're such an unusual bookstore in that way and that you do have a lay readership for university presses do you think it's a possibility for other stores to to kind of break into that market they're expensive they um they're they're not always glamorous <laughs>
0: uh, that's such a good question and that's really one of the challenges that we think about daily at the co-op is how to um, not only how to sell university press books to our audience, but how to make a case for university press books as important sources of knowledge and thought for a very wide audience and in in pushing for a not for profit status for the co-op and pushing for a different business model across the, the industry, one of the things that will allow uh, many stores to do, we hope, is to look into stocking books from university presses, there are serious financial constraints and serious and very real financial constraints that prevent uh, bookshops of any size from stocking university press books. So the more we can kind of uh, challenge the current financial structure of the industry and insist on the different definitions of value and success both for publishers and for bookstores as well as for authors editors translators fact checkers every everyone who's working on the book and push for proper remuneration of everyone involved uh for everyone involved in the book um the the more it will seem possible for bookstores to stock these books they won't be so exclusive if we Um, find ways to solve the financial constraints that prevent people from getting university press books in their store. Mm -hmm. And then you just got to be enthusiastic about them. They sell sell themselves once they're in front of the right reader.
1: (laughs) So this was a, a year of absolute giant Releases maybe the most that I can remember in um, any uh, year in the last five anyway. Uh, you've got Kazuo Ishiguro, Colson Whitehead, Sally Rooney. Lauren I knew Brock. that
3: name would come up sooner or later. Yeah, I
1: know. <laughs> yeah, Lisa has some strong, <laughs> some strong takes on <laughs> Sally Rooney, um, and you know the, the list goes on. Um, a blockbuster year, and you think about that in some ways as. As being great for bookstores, um, what's your feeling about a year of big names? Does it end up lifting all boats? Do you get people in the door with a with a big name like Ishiguro or Whitehead, um, and then they end up buying the the less blockbustery thing as well, or is it do they just suck up all the light and energy from the super wonderful interesting things you're trying to to hand sell yourself?
3: Well, this is Lisa, and I would say that um, I, I don't think, I think that the concern I have with blockbusters and with one particular name you mentioned um, <laughs> is more around the publisher side of things and the kind of marketing attention and dollars that go into one author when there are so many other authors that get next to none of that. Um, mm-hmm. I think on the bookstore side, yeah, I think that probably people come in and they encounter other things we have conversations with them. Um, and I do think that, you know, when there are some big books, it draws people into the store. So I'm not sure that it does anything bad on our end, I think it's it's mostly a, a good thing um, and a rising tide and all. But I am more frustrated thinking about the many many authors who do not get that kind of attention from the publishing world.
2: Although this is Kasha, I, I wanted to say that I wonder um, if. There's also the backlash to some of that is maybe helpful um, in that I know like when there was the whole scandal about American dirt, mm-hmm. um, that led me to discover the writing of Miriam Gorba, mm-hmm. who is absolutely amazing. Mm-hmm. So there, there's a part of me that's like, but there's there's hope, you know, there are people kind of responding and resisting. And and so maybe that's a way, right? But
4: uh, This is Michelle. I think just to piggyback off of Lisa, you know, it, it doesn't hurt us. Uh, It does bring people into the store, you know, but it's all about how we market and promote books. Mm -hmm. You know, if someone wants Colson Whitehead, then we also are hand-selling, you know, similar authors that are lesser or lesser-known authors Mm -hmm. or small presses or university presses um, who might be touching on a similar theme. So, We use it as a way to help uplift other authors. And I think just to touch on university presses just for a little bit, you know, when I joined the store, I was told, oh, those presses just don't sell for us and our customers. And as a former academic, (laughs) begrudgingly so, as Chris knows, um, you know, I, 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 I thought that we can change that. And I think part of that is in how you merchandise your
3: stock. Mm -hmm.
4: And so our displays, whatever they may be, are going to have, yes, there's like an anchor title because people see it and they're going to go to it. But there they will then see smaller presses, university press titles, authors they've never heard of, et cetera, and become more aware of what else is out there. Mm -hmm. And so as a result of how we merchandise university press titles and smaller authors and combining them into our other bigger displays. And I sometimes think we think of displays and we're just getting those bestseller titles. And I say that just as like a general bricks and mortar bookstore. I think we get a little myopic sometimes. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's important that we think about inclusivity on every level. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we will. We also have these like shelf talkers. If you like this, try that. And so we'll do them for some big, mi- big name authors I was like you know do you like Sally Rooney then like read Dolly Alderton's Mm ghost because she knows how to talk about the human condition but make you laugh (laughs) unlike Sally (laughs) and (laughs) (laughs) and so you know that is how we kind of we're like that's who you're looking for well here's this other author just so you know and it, you know, I love Crying in H Mart. I adore that book, but I use that book as a way to sell Grace Cho. Mm-hmm. Did, you, did you read that? Then you should also read
2: Tastes Like War. I also, and this is Kasha, I, I really appreciate that because I feel like there there's a way in which the kind of publishing world has a there can be only one mentality so you know it's like oh there's there's one trendy millennial novelist this year and that's the one we're going to talk about <laughs> Though all of the other ones will get ignored um and so I, I really relish that idea of like okay but actually we can use this as a way to kind of drag <laughs> those back into the conversation they no 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 you actually you also need to read
0: this I, this is elena i think that all of this highlights it um, uh, allows us to talk about you know uh, the value of a bookstore, the value of a bookseller, what actually happens in a bookstore other than uh, trying to alphabetize books um, because it's it's so much you know like I will never complain about someone walking into the store and looking for for the Colson Whitehead they uh, they saw in the newspaper like, absolutely I would love to to give you those books but how do we push the conversation beyond that either through displays or hand selling Mm -hmm. um, or any anything else that happens in a bookstore and really showing um not kind of like sitting here and complaining you know everyone's buying one book but no wow what a great chance to to point people in other directions to to show them like who you know colson whitehead's influences are or that this author's first book was actually a university press book and Mm -hmm. so like you're reading their, uh, their new press version of it. Now uh, let's go back and see what their first book was, the university press, how those ideas developed. Mm-hmm. And it, it all comes down to what, what actually happens in a bookstore What the value of a bookstore is because it's not just it's certainly not just putting bestsellers in front of you. Um, but that's a great reason to, to walk in the door. Mm-hmm. We just need to know how to engage in conversation beyond that.
3: Yeah. And this is Lisa Tuck. uh Michelle hit on this a bit, but, you know, certainly I think this is true for most indie bookstores that one of the best ways we sell books and especially books that are not always the ones that everyone is talking about is through our staff recommends shelves and our shelf talkers. And, you know, those in the know, I'm sure Chris and Kasha, when you go into bookstores, you look at those staff um, shelf talkers. It's it's valuable, and that's mm-hmm. a value that can't be overstated.
1: <laughs> I, I mean, it is uh, the three of you have have pointed out so beautifully why it matters to have an independent bookstore with um, brilliant, thoughtful interested, um, booksellers who are going to reach out to you and say, I see you like this, but how about this? And they're going to expand the things that you read. They're going, I mean, it is a kind of citizen making work. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just about, a, a commercial transaction. And I think that's why that idea of a different business model is so necessary because I, I can't imagine what it would be like to just like go online and buy a book, that I, you know, had heard of once, it's, it's always for me about those staff recommendations and about, you know, coming in and talking to Lisa and Lisa will say, this is a book I know that you're going to like, um, <laughs> and I will have never heard of it. And I a hundred percent like it. Um, and you know, that is happening a- across the country, but people take it for granted. I think sometimes, um, and I, what I hoped this show would do, it, it certainly has for me. And that is to remind us never to take our wonderful indie bookstores for granted. Um, I want to let everyone know that the full lists of recommendations from our booksellers today are going to be up on the website at burnedbybooks.com, and they will be linked to the particular um, indie bookseller in a store where you can buy them and support that store um so thank you elena michelle lisa and kasha so much for a wonderful and enriching conversation
3: thank you let's do it again next week yeah thank you
0: <laughs> thank
1: you all. Yes.
3: thank you so hey, much for having me
0: <laughs> i'm
2: excited to read all of these books that you've been talking about
1: <laughs> me too thank you so much Well, that's all from us today. I want to thank Lisa Swayze from Buffalo Street Books, Michelle Malonzo from Changing Hands Bookstore, and Elena Jones from the Seminary Co-op Bookstores. As well, a giant thank you to my co-host for this episode, Kasha. You can find the over 60 recommended titles from our booksellers on the website at burnedbybooks.com, where you can purchase them directly from the bookstores themselves. Happy holidays and happy reading. This has been Burned by Books.